stories are about id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Helen Oyeyemi. Born in Nigeria, Oyeyemi grew up in England and burst on the British literary scene with her first widely acclaimed novel, The Icarus Girl, which she wrote in high school. A ghost story about an eight-year-old girl torn between her British and Nigerian identities, The Icarus Girl was just the first of Oyeyemi's books that grappled with fables and fairy tales and reworked them. Her second book, The Opposite House, explored Cuban mysticism. The third, White is for Witching, the winner of the 2010 Somerset Mom Award, explored Gothic horror. And her 2011 novel, Mr. Fox, reworks the tale of Bluebeard, featuring a writer with a penchant for murdering his heroines. Remarkably, all four of these books were written before Oyemi was 27. In 2013, Granta named Oyeyemi as one of the best British novelists, and she's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her fifth and latest book, Boy Snow Bird, a retelling of the Snow White tale set in the America of the 1950s. Welcome to Between the Covers, Helen Oyeyemi. Hello, thanks for having me. So you've said before in other discussions with people that you like to argue with the rules of fairy tales and, and, and rework them. Can you... Um, Tell us a little bit about that process. How does that go when you're grappling with a fairy tale and, and creating a fiction out of it? I think that probably you start to argue with fairy tales once you introduce character um, into them because character is sort of where a person disagrees with their own narrative um, in a way and, and starts trying to turn it around. So in Mr. Fox, um, I have I have a bluebeard who doesn't really want to be a bluebeard. Um, it begins with this writer being confronted by his muse for killing off um, all of the women in his stories, and he's really unhappy because he realizes there's really lazy craft. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has to try and work a, work out a way to um, to change. And similarly with Voice No Bird, I have a wicked stepmother who is doing her utmost to not be a wicked stepmother who wants to just find another way to um, relate to her biological daughter and her stepdaughter. Um, so yeah, you, you really begin with character and that's when all the disagreements with the rules of the story begin. And when you, when you look at a fairy tale that compels you and you, you want to make it your own, other than dimensionalizing the characters from the from the fairy tales and imagining their interior psychologies, uh, are are you also looking at uh, things that you're not satisfied with, or that you wish were different when when you read the originals? Um, always, I, I do try to try to change the conditions a little bit. Um, in Boys No Bird, it's very much a book against mirrors, or at least a warning against mirrors. Um, 
in the original fairy tale, the Wicked Stepmother um, relies so completely on the verdict of the mirror that Snow White is the first of them all and the consequences unfold from that. Um, but a more modern woman sort of listens to this, um, to these words from the mirror and is just a lot more skeptical. Yeah, it was, the, the mirror image seems to repeat in a lot of your books, at least the idea of, of the doppelganger. I know there's a mirror in, uh, that plays a role in The White is for Witching, but the issue of the doppelganger also in, in The Icarus Girl. Can, can you tell us what appeals to you about, uh, about that? Um, I just seem to keep bumping up against mirrors. Um, in White is for Witching, it's very much the mirror. Um, that book had a sort of Mr. Victoriana above it, and, and so that had a lot to do with um, mirror seances and the, um, their role in calling up ghosts and also this belief that the mirror um, reflects things that we can't see with our, with our own poor human eyes, um, which is something that's completely the opposite in, um, in Boys No Bird, where mirrors actually fail to do their work. Um, quite spectacularly at times. Well, it's interesting how we think of a mirror being something accurate at first thought, and, and here we're finding out that it is only representing the surfaces. Yeah. Um, had a, I have a friend whose husband is an artist, and she was telling me about how when he f- has finished painting something or is almost finished painting something, he looks at it in a mirror to look for the flaws. Um, oh, wow. And I thought that that was... That was it was an interesting way of using them, using them to look for flaws as opposed to um, to look for... I think we tend to look to them for truth, but I think if you look into a mirror knowing exactly what you're looking for, then it's a much different relationship, and the relationship that you have is a lot different. Well, let's push a little further into that. It, it, both the Snow White myth and, and, and Boy Snowbird look at and interrogate the issue of beauty and of, of female beauty and of self-regard, in a sense, and vanity. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you were doing there in, in the novel? I think there are lots of ways in which um, a person can be trapped by their own image or that others, or that we attempt to trap each other um, into images. So, so there are fixed roles that are played out with Snow. Everybody around her has decided that she's the fairest of them all, and that kind of freezes her um, somewhat unnaturally. Um, when she behaves in certain ways, she's told that she's not behaving like herself, um, which is which is ludicrous, um, and it it creates this tremendous disconnect between, um, I suppose, between your character and um, and what people see. And some of the characters in the book, um, like Boy and like the Whitmans, find a way to project an image and then move sort of silently and independently beneath the surface of that image without anyone bothering them, which is their kind of priority, that they just not be bothered, that they be left alone. Um, and I, I identify with that very much. <laughs> I, I, I have always felt, oh, just leave me alone. All I've wanted to do is read. <laughs> uh-huh. And write, and write, obviously. Right, uh, well, not, writing, not always, actually. Um, reading, definitely, most of all, and it's always felt as if... Um, Things get in the way. <laughs> well, well t- tell us a little about your choice to retell Snow White from the perspective of the of the stepmother, the wicked stepmother in the original version, and and h- how you began with that, and and what that choice means for the for the novel. It was a combination of things. I I think a lot about alliance. Um, and about bonds between women and how they're not necessarily the same as the bond between a woman and a man. I think there are some women 
um, like I'm thinking of Ruth and Naomi in the Old Testament who will just follow each other, whether they'll go, a I will go. Um, and that kind of absolute um, solidarity, I suppose, can lead you into the, the most bitter disappointment um, possible, um, especially between an older woman and a younger woman and the ways in which they look at each other, the older woman looking at the younger woman um, as this kind of bringer of potential and the, and the younger woman looking at the older woman as, in a way, her future self. And there were kind of all of these identifications that... Um, that generation that generally ugh, that generationally we can transfer onto each other um and then there's just this kind of great clash um so i wanted to look into that dynamic i think it's um it can be specifically a, a stepmother stepdaughter's um dynamic at least in fairy tales and you found Snow White in the original tale to be more terrifying than than the wicked stepmother, and and then I read that you, in the process of writing the book, actually found yourself feeling sorry for the Snow White character that you created. How how did that happen? And and what was terrifying about the original Snow White when when you read the the, the fable? Um, she's so passive that it seems like the calm before a very great storm. <laughs> so many things happen yeah. to her and she just sort of meekly accepts them. And then she sort of lies down into death and is woken up by this prince. And, um, yes, you wonder, but in Anne Sexton's, um, transformations, which is one of those retellings that actually really changed the way that I saw the story. Um, you see that, in a way, it's as if one psyche is separated into two. So you have the wicked stepmother um, who who is the active one and who suffers the most horrific punishment while Snow White kind of sits there watching with them, um, blinking her eyes like a doll. And um, that kind of gives you chills. And yet in the process of characterizing her in the novel, you, you found yourself having some empathy for her scenario. Um, yeah, she's put in... She's put in an awful position um, within her family. She's, she has all these expectations on her that she can't possibly um, live up to. And also, I, I'm not sure... I don't know. I think that Boy felt for her. Um, and, and it's an interesting thing about Boy, because as I was writing her, um, she would never admit to caring about hardly anybody. <laughs> but actually, she cares about lots of people. She remembers lots of details from the lives of um, friends or people that she's only even met once. And um, this kind of attention is something that she passes on to her daughter, who then has this kind of journalistic um, quest to to record everything. Um, and, yeah, so I think that it was Boy's impulse to, to try and find the real snow that uncovers the real snow a little bit and um, that makes her come to life. We're talking today to author Helen Oyeyemi about her fifth and latest novel, Boy Snowbird. Uh, Helen, do you want to read a little bit from, from the novel for us? Yes, um, I'll just read a bit from the very first chapter. Nobody ever warned me about mirrors, so for many years I was fond of them and believed them to be trustworthy. I'd hide myself away inside them, setting two mirrors up to face each other, so that when I stood between them, I was infinitely reflected in either direction. Many, many me's. When I stood on tiptoe, we all stood on tiptoe, trying to see the first of us and the last. The effect was dizzying, a vast pulse, 
not quite alive, more like the working of an automaton. I felt the reflection at my shoulder like a touch. I was on the most familiar terms with her, same as any other junior dope too lonely to be selective about the company she keeps. Mirror showed me that I was a girl with a white blonde pigtail hanging down over one shoulder, eyebrows and lashes the same colour, still near black eyes, and one of those faces some people call harsh and others call fine-boned. It was not unusual for me to fix a scarf around my head and spend an afternoon pretending that I was a nun from another century. My forehead was high enough. And my complexion is unpredictable. Goes from near bloodless to scalded and back again, all without my permission. There are still days when I can only work out whether or not I'm upset by looking at my face. Do you do you do your own audiobooks? Because if you don't, you, <laughs> you really should. No, oh, thank you. It's very flattering. I'm actually really excited about the audiobook for this because they've got two actresses. Um, oh, one, really? one for boy and one for bird because those are the two main voices in the book. And have you heard um, it? I, they sent me a sample of the actress who read bird and it was just spot on. So oh, that's great. I think it's gonna be good. Well, maybe for your next book. <laughs> so I have a question I wanted to ask you about the issue of spoilers and narratives and the partly because in my, I, I'm sort of the, the ongoing joke in my book club because I'm always the one who's, who's allergic to having the narrative spoiled. And this book has a lot of uh, secrets in it. Mm -hmm. And yet some of the secrets are exposed in interviews and also on the, on the back of the, of the book, (laughs) which, which I always avoid when I read books. So I was curious what your relationship to that is and, and how much you want to push into some of the mysteries that are, that are contained in the book in our discussion. Um, I think you can't really win with spoilers. Um, in the UK, I didn't talk about plot at all much I, I mostly gave a general overview because the jacket copy on the UK just kind of says that the book is about a mysterious connection between three women which makes it sound a little bit on the boring side actually like <laughs> if I was picking up myself I'd be like hmm but I can totally understand why they did that why they did that because the experience for a reader in the UK will be more like what and then what um which I actually really appreciate because as I was writing from inside boy that's what I was going through um but with the US, I think I think maybe there's this sort of surplus of um, fairy tale retellings. Um, not that I'm complaining, I love all fairy tale retellings, but um, there's a need to say how this fairy tale retelling is different from other ones. Um, and so highlighting that it is about race, um, that is partially about race, um, is important, I think. But for me, when I'm reading a book... Um, Personally, I don't mind plot spoilers. You don't mind them? No, I don't, um, because I tend to read for a way of seeing more than anything else. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to know a character, um, yeah, and and if I know what happens to them beforehand, it doesn't make much deal. of a difference. You'd yeah. be one of those people laughing at me in my book club. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. So let's talk a little bit about the 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 interrogation of, of race in, in Boy Snowbird. Uh, one of the issues that it goes into is the issue of, or the phenomenon of passing, of, of light-skinned African-Americans uh, passing as white and mm-hmm. the legacy that has the ghost families that it creates mm-hmm. um, as, as they essentially disinherit potentially parts of their family um, in order to pass as white. I, I was interested to learn that 
in, in reading some of your interviews that that is an American phenomenon and not one that happens in Europe. Can, yeah. you, can you talk a little bit about that, for instance? I'm not sure why. I think it might just be because in some ways there was less to gain from passing in Europe. Um, I mean, there were actually, in parts of the country at the time that the book is set, there were actually laws um, that dictated where black people could sit and eat and go to school. Um, and the Whitmans kind of partly enjoy, but are partly really grieved <laughs> by making a mockery of these laws and just passing fluidly between these um, between these different parts of existence almost um, and just seeing how artificial the whole construct of it was. Um, but something that I've read, which kind of fed into what I ended up writing, was a short story by um, Hisayo Yamamoto, um, who's a Japanese-American writer, and she talks about, she writes about traveling through the South um, during the early 50s, I think, and struggling to decide whether she should go into the colored bathroom or the one for whites. And eventually she sort of talked herself into this state where she decided that she should go into the whites bathroom. And she saw a cleaning lady, a colored, a, a, what she called a colored cleaning lady in there, um, who looked at her just so expression, expressionlessly that um, the gaze stayed with her for days. Um, <clears throat> and so that was something to do with a failure of solidarity, um, yeah, which, which fed into what I ended up writing. And so it really makes the setting and the time period crucial to to this book. It's hard to imagine this book not taking place in America and not taking place in that pivot point uh, in the 1950s and 1960s in America. Yeah, I I think it just had to be, and I was I was wary of setting it um, actually in the South. I thought it was it was necessary to have um, a degree of distance to some extent, but also to show how pervasive those ways of thinking. Um, could be, and how how much do you rely on on research and versus uh, imaginative capacities when when creating the nineteen fifties America when when you're British, for instance? Um, it was a mix of things. I have a sort of residual knowledge of fifties um, and sixties American pop culture, just because <laughs> it's sort of my favorite um, personal zone to be in. Um, so I'm always playing doo wop songs and etc. and yeah, comparing and contrasting that to to what I know of America from reading about, um, say, the Black Panthers, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, was yeah, it was, a, it was a kind of jolt. There's, there's a jolt um, that happens when you realise that that you have these housewives serving up apple pies, and um, and then there are there are horrific lynchings going on, and at the same time, um, and I actually think that. Um, some of Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry captures the uncanniness of that. Um, I read a poetry. Um, I read a poetry. <laughs> I read a poem of hers about <clears throat> the woman who sort of instigated the murder of Emmett Till. That um, hmm. that really stuck with me, and how this woman is sort of wondering, like on some subconscious level, she was worth all of that. Um, yeah. That sounds like you probably know more about the time period than most Americans. Oh, <laughs> the, the Emmett Till murder. I couldn't sleep or believe it yeah. for a long time after I read it. It was, yeah. 
Uh, in case you just tuned in, we're talking to Helen Oyemi about her latest book, Boy Snowbird. Another thing I noticed in in the book is while the while the novel's really full of a lot of of women and strong female characters, there's a real absence of mothers, and uh, that that uh, uh, juxtaposition was really fascinating to me. And was that something that you you set out to to do or, or discovered that you had done? I'm not quite sure. I think it's more something that I discovered I had done. Although when I first began the book, um, a writer friend said to me that one of the most fun things about a wicked stepmother is when it's impossible to determine her origin. Um, and so I kind of thought, perhaps on some level, I thought that um, motherlessness was one way of um, coming at this so a way of saying there is no precedent for this kind of woman that I'm presenting you with. And, and boy, who is is the name of the the wicked stepmother in, in this story? She has a childhood love, but she chooses to marry. It, it seems for more um, practical and sober reasons than than going for the intoxication of of the feeling she has for this childhood love. But it's never fully explained why she makes that choice. And I was curious what your thoughts were on, on, um, what drew her into this life. Was it the, her captivation with snow who would become her stepdaughter that drew her to the, her future husband? Partly. I mean, I guess if, if boy was here right now and we are church, she would say that she married for peace of mind, <laughs> but, um, because, because her childhood love made the great mistake of telling her that she was beautiful in front of her father, which kind of, destroyed anything that they could that they could possibly have had because of the consequences of that um yeah boy needs not to she needs not to be bothered she needs people not to tell her things about herself um she just wants to be herself um and does that go back to the mirror theme of being seen by her father being told that she's beautiful the the reflecting back on what she appears to be that's exactly it she wants to completely sidestep all reflections um even the ones that are meant as loving ones, which turn bitter um, for her. But on another level, I think with Boy, she has this understanding of herself as bad, but she also has this understanding of her badness as useful. So I think with Snow and the Whitmans, she sees that there is some trouble, some necessary trouble that she has to create within that family. And so she does. <laughs> hmm. so, so stepping back on and looking more generally at the enterprise of your, your five books and, and your uh, retelling of, of fairy tales, can you talk a little bit about what it is about fairy tales that attracts you and, and attracts you enough to return to frequently? I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure. I think there's something in the logic of them maybe um the kind of very strange childlike stroke um logic that comes upon you when you're not feeling very well um that you can unpick and find maybe a lot of our most primal um emotions and instincts um the things that drive us um the things that we fear um the remedies the remedies for our for all our ills, our psychological ills anyway. And you take these things and you can 
shift them around to all sorts of different times and places and somehow they still work um so yeah it's been it's been fun climbing around inside that hmm. and, and when you were writing white is for witching you were you were reading shirley jackson at the time a, yeah. a, a specific book by her uh the haunting of hill house yeah is there a book that you were reading or books that you were reading for a boy snowbird that informed s- some of its telling not really. I was reading so much, um, but nothing that really fed into Boy Snowbird. I think the things I was reading are going to feed into the next book, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about I it? I can't. You can't tell us a little? <laughs> You'll have to wait and All be right. shot. <laughs> and then what about non-literary influences on this book? You, you'd mentioned with Mr. Fox that there was a lot of film noir element mm-hmm. to it. Were there any? Was there any film or music or... Anything that you can think of that went into Boy Snowbird as you wrote it? Um, well, with Boy Novak, that's a nod to um, Kim Novak, who I always think of as the as the most deeply sad blonde in films. I would always mm. watch her, and the the depths the depths in her eyes um, were mesmerizing in a way. And I just always wanted her to be okay and to, to sort of make a way out, find a way out. Um, and so, yeah, kind of giving Boy her surname and and making sure that she got out <laughs> and was safe um it was kind of my nod to kim novak um lots of the characters i i could easily think of a sort of classic hollywood film analog um for them actually that's interesting <laughs> so, yeah well at the same time you you really make these choices that um keep people from feeling totally at ease in this in a good way it creates an eeriness or an uncanniness the the main character being named boy, but being a woman, uh, black people passing as white people, the mirror not being honest. It's mm. very unsettling in a pleasurably unsettling way, I think, the, right. the atmosphere that you create. I think, again, it feeds into the time and just the strangeness of that time. Um, just before great changes, um, when things are still sort of transforming and shifting from one state to another. Yeah, the metamorphosis. Yeah. When I first heard about you, when I had a couple of years ago, I had China Mieville on, and he was raving about oh, White is for Witching. He's the loveliest. And he said, the way he described it was, I love what Helen Oyemi is doing in this book, but I cannot understand how she's doing it. And I love that I can't understand how she's doing <laughs> it. Like the mechanics, you'd created a spell, so he couldn't see the magic of how you created it. And I was curious if there were authors like that for you that you go to not to learn how to write necessarily, but to be, to be mystified by, by how Um, they write and inspired by how they write. Huh. Um, Kelly link is definitely one. Um, no idea how, um, Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson. Yeah. Um, I'm really, really, really delighted by um, somebody who's also on the grant list with me, Jenny Fagan, mm. um, who wrote The Panopticon, which the heroine is this orphan who is, I don't really know how to explain it. She's sort of, her psyche is gigantic um, and so powerful that she scares her own hallucinations. So at one point she hallucinates some walls, some faces coming out of the wall and she says to them, can I help you? And they sort of recede back into the wall immediately. And that is the kind of girl that she is. She'll wear lipstick and pillbox hats, but be ready to sort of jump into a brawl at the um, slightest moment's notice. Um, so yeah, Jenny Fagan is one 
is one who captures a kind of reckless girlhood and um yeah that i love who else um, and what about writers that you you f- find a familiar uh, resonance with ones that you do go to for because they're they feel kin- like kindred spirits um oh well there's barbara commons um who i think has been influencing more and more me more and more ever since i first read her which was shortly before writing mr fox um she has this um candid style um that i like um and that i that i think i sometimes use um a kind of a frankness that is slightly frightening because you think well what is she gonna say next (laughs) because she seems like she might actually tell you the truth um, and you might not want to hear it oh that sounds delightful Um, so i love barbara commons who else i've I've started reading an argentinian early 20th century writer called silvina ocampo who writes a lot about um dreams amoral children (laughs) intensely amoral children actually um and the kind of circularity of time that i recognize well, I know you don't want to talk about your next project, though. Mm-hmm. Though it sounds like it's germinating right now, but can you can you tell us a little bit about how, having written Boy Snowbird, how that potentially informs the choices you're making in your next project? That you want to do with something that's more a certain way or less a certain way based on what you've just finished? Um, I think I'll be. Ta- I know that I'll be taking a break from fairy tales. Um, other than that, I think it's going to be a completely different thing. Um, I think the attitude will be the same. That, I think that's the sort of one constant between all my books, that there's a certain attitude. Um, <laughs> so I think that will be the same, but um, I don't think I will work work so much on tropes. Huh. Well, I really look forward to it. It was great Thank having you. you on Between the Covers today, Helen. Thanks so much. We are talking today with Helen Oyeyemi, the author of Boy, Snow, Bird. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Mm-hmm.